Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, do you like quizzes? Could you answer 10 general knowledge questions loosely connected to cabinet jobs? If you could, then you could become the Prime Minister of our show on the radio. Just get in touch, email me matt.chorley at times.radio and we'll get you on the radio very soon. Particularly if you're outside the UK and you can come on on Thursday and be our international quizzer. It's matt.chorley at times.radio if you want to come on and do the quiz and just have a chat. That'll be fun. Right, coming up on today's bumper edition of the podcast, in our big thing today, we are looking at second homes. Is your holiday killing the countryside? Uh, is your Airbnb just one of many of the thousands of homes which now stand idle for a lot of the year, squeezing locals of having somewhere to live? That's our big thing uh, coming up. We've also got Finkelvich, Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich are back, picking over the news, including should we shoot the alpaca? That's something to look forward to. But first, it is exam results day. It's A-level results day in England. So what we thought we'd do is we thought we'd ask a lot of politicians how they got on with their A-levels. Uh, some did better than others, but they've all turned out all right in the end. Well, I'll leave you to judge that. So this is what happened when we asked some MPs uh, to give us their reflections on their own results and what happened next. We kick off with Angela Rayner, Deputy Leader of the Labour Party. I um, left school at 16, um, pregnant, and didn't pass any of my GCSEs and didn't go into higher education and did some vocational courses after I'd had my son. And I wouldn't say so I've got any right to give anyone um, advice on A-level results, but what I would say is that being yourself and knowing that whatever the results are it's not about what it says on a piece of paper it's about how you feel and where you take it i'm now the deputy leader of the labor party and i've always known that my vocation in life is people and i looked after my mum when i was young and then i had a son when i was really young and i just know that i love people i like to help people and it's my vocation and i've excelled at it and i think that's why i've got to the position i am in in the movement and as the member of parliament for ashton and the line so i found my passion in life and my advice to you is regardless of what your results are do something that you feel passionate about that makes you feel fulfilled and happy and it's different for everybody so you know don't let a piece of paper or a result define who you are you define who you are because there's only one you Next up, Labour frontbencher Wes Streeting. This is Wes Streeting, Labour MP for Ilford North and Labour's Shadow Child Poverty Secretary. I just want to wish everyone collecting their A-level results a massive good luck today, especially given the couple of years that you've all been through. I still remember my A-level results day as if it was yesterday. It was actually 20 years ago and it was so nerve-wracking. I had an offer to read history at Selwyn College, Cambridge. I needed three A's and it was such a big deal um, for me. Uh, you know, first person in my family to go to university, free school meals, grew up on a council estate, kids like me from backgrounds like mine didn't and in too many cases still don't tend to make it. So I was really, really nervous and I got to my school and the teachers, um, they were really cruel actually. They they gave me my first two A-level results and sort of held the third one back with this look of misery on their faces as if I had not done it. And then they kind of went, and you got three A's and I was sort of jumping up and down. It was like a, a really, I mean, it's just amazing day, life-changing day actually, thinking about what, what it did for the rest of my future. And um, 
As for the rest of that day, I think it was spent in a drunken stupor in the pub with my mates all celebrating and commiserating. And um, look, whatever your results, uh, I, you know, people who did well, people who did not so well or well as they'd like, they've gone on to do some absolutely amazing things. So whatever the results today, it's, it's only the start of your future and it's not the determination of your future. Now let's hear from the Conservative MP, Andrea Jenkins. After my GCSEs, I left school at 16 and got my first job working at Greg's Bakery. Whilst I entered into the world of work, I always cared about education and ultimately took the plunge and decided to study at the Open Uni in my 30s. I can honestly say that regardless of how students get on when their results come out, they should know that many doors will remain open to them, whether they want to continue their studies or go into employment. What matters most is whether you can say that you have done your best, because if you have, that is ultimately all that matters and you should be proud of that. Here's Labour MP Bambos Chavalambos. I got grades C, C, E in my A-levels and this was just enough to get me into Liverpool Polytechnic which was my second choice to read law and despite missing out on other choices I ended up having four of the best years of my life in Liverpool and I even got a 2-1. Next up, Conservative MP Deanna Davidson. Hi everyone, this is Deanna Davison, the MP for Bishop Auckland. Just wishing you all a huge good luck for today. And whatever results you got, whether you got what you wanted or not, don't fear, there is always a path forward. Um, Even if you didn't get the results that you expected, new doors will open. I have a load of friends who got into universities through clearing after not getting their dream results and have ended up going on to really enjoy their time at university and to go on to some incredible careers. So don't worry. Good luck, and uh, whatever happens, just know that you're going to have bright futures ahead of you. Let's hear now from Housing Secretary Robert Jenwick. A massive good luck to everyone getting their A-level results. Obviously, a uh, big deal, a uh, big kind of next step in your life and moving on to the next phase, whether that's university or training or work or something else. Um, my advice, I suppose, is that although it is that big step, it's also not uh, the end, it's not irreversible it's not changeable I mean I didn't get the A-levels that I wanted in the end I was kind of a grade below everything I needed for my course Uh, ended up doing a different course turned out to not be what I wanted I dropped out after a year of university Um, but turned out to be the best thing I ever did if I hadn't dropped out wouldn't have met my wife wouldn't have my kids wouldn't be a member of parliament because I'd never got into politics in the first place you know so these things happen for a reason and uh, you know results are not the be all and end all they're not um, you know, pass or fail, really. Uh, it's just uh, helps you to decide which bit you go and do next. Uh, and that's totally within your control. So um, enjoy it, embrace it, whatever the next step is, uh, and you'll be great. Next up, Conservative MP Ben Bradley. A massive good luck to everyone getting their A-level results. Obviously, a uh, big deal, a uh, big kind of next step in your life and moving on to the next phase, whether that's university or training or work or something else. Um, my advice, I suppose, is that although it is that big step, it's also not uh, the end. It's not irreversible. It's not changeable. I mean, I didn't get the A-levels that I wanted. In the end, I was kind of a grade below everything I needed for my course. Uh, ended up doing a different course. Turned out to not be what I wanted. I dropped out after a year of university. Um, but turned out to be the best thing I ever did. If I hadn't have dropped out, wouldn't have met my wife, wouldn't have my kids, wouldn't be a member of parliament because I'd have never got into politics in the first place, you know. So these things happen for a reason. And, uh, you know, results are not the be all and end all. They're not, um, you know, pass or fail, really. Uh, it's just uh, helps you to decide which bit you go and do next. Uh, and that's totally within your control. So um, enjoy it, embrace it, whatever the next step is, uh, and you'll be great. And finally, some words of wisdom from the Tory MP, Bim Afalami. Look, exams matter, but not as much as many people might think, indeed as you might think. But I want to refer you to the words of that well-known wise sage, George W. Bush, and some things he said at the University of Texas many years ago. And he said, to those of you who received honours, awards and distinctions, I say, well done, you've got a great future ahead of you. And to the C students, I say you too 
can be president of the United States. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Time for this! Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich, with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich, on Times Radio. Every time I listen to that, there's something else I didn't know. The ultimate portmanteau of political opinion. Anyway, here they are. It's Finkelvich. It's Danny Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And David Ivanovich. How are you, David? I'm fine. There's a strange yellow thing in the sky outside, and I'm having trouble coming to terms with it. Don't worry. It won't be there long. It won't be there. Draw your I... curtains and stay indoors. You'll be fine. I, I, I'll do that now. <laughs> Before we... Um, let's talk. We've been hearing from MPs about their uh, exams stories. Uh, have you got any exam stories that you want to share? Did you both pass with flying colours? <laughs> I mean, presumably not, given what you now do for a living. Well, I do I do have an exam story. I, mean, I, I only lasted two terms at Oxford before they kicked me out. But one of the things I managed to do was to be expelled from an Oxford exam. Um, wow. because I wasn't Because I wasn't properly subfuscular. And what that meant was that instead of having a white shirt to go with my gown and my mortarboard and my black shoes and so on, I had a paisley coloured shirt. And the person, uh, and so one of the invigilators actually turned me out of the exam. And then when I left the BBC after working for them for a while, they managed for my leaving video to find the man who'd thrown me out of the examination. (laughs) And he remembered it very well. And he seemed to think that what he'd done was good. Well, even then, even like years later... Years and years later, he thought it was a good thing to have done. It's a strange old place, isn't it? Um, uh, very, very peculiar. No wonder it turns out such strange people. Uh, Danny, um, you're, have you got an exam story? Not really. I, I do remember travelling to get my A-level results from school with my dad in the car and him distracting me with a long conversation about Ted Kennedy's bid to uh, become the Democratic presidential candidate, uh, which was 1980. So I remember doing that. But my, my A-levels were my singular exam triumph. So all the rest, unfortunately, paled uh, by, uh, by comparison, but uh, they were good. Uh, that's because I sort of, you know, managed to restrict myself just to the subjects I really enjoyed: politics, economics, and maths. And how do you? He gave up the drink. 
<laughs> and the all night race. Um, so how do you, how do you feel for uh, the um, college leavers today, where they've barely got hold of their virtual piece of paper, their results on, and already they're being told they're not worth the piece of paper they're not written on, yeah. and it's all a grade inflation. It's all a total waste of time. It's, it's very unfair on them. But look, the truth is that the unfairness is created by the fact that we haven't been able to have a proper examination system. Last year, we complained that some people were unjustifiably denied the grades they could have achieved by a modulation system. And this year, we're complaining that everybody's got whatever grade the teachers have assessed them because we don't have a proper modulation system. Well, the truth is those were the two broad choices if you didn't have a system uh, of examination and um that's we've ended up with you know one disadvantage this year and one disadvantage last year and um I suppose it couldn't have been beyond the wit of man to have thought of a completely alternative system of uh, giving people examination results of some kind. Um, but that would also not have been comparable. So we just have to accept they weren't comparable because we weren't able to do a comparable thing. Uh, and therefore, we can't produce comparable results and we shouldn't sweat them. And everybody who's achieved good results, they've achieved good results within the system they've had and they should be very pleased with them and proud of the work they've done and look forward to their future with confidence and accept that you know they've had to endure a lot of bad things in the last year if some of them have as a result achieved slightly better a-level grades than they would otherwise have got that doesn't seem unreasonable compensation and ultimately uh david it's just a step to whatever your next thing is and as long as it gets you to where you <laughs> want to be um you know, nobody asked me about my level results. Anymore. I mean, maybe because they're not that surprised that this is where I've ended up. But nobody, you know, it's only... It's only <laughs> Can this... I just point out that you just did ask that question? Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, neither of you told me what you got, uh, which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Gavin Williamson earlier. Um, uh, but it, 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 sort of, it feels like a really big issue, a really big thing at the time, because it uh, is a big thing. But obviously, you yeah. know... Um, I, first thing to say is that I feel for those who haven't got A's because people are going to think they're really dim. Um, and actually, it could just be that they've got really much more sharp teachers marking them and so on. So there's a kind of slight worry there. Um, <laughs> I am completely intolerant of people complaining about exam inflation this year in the way that Danny suggested. Um, uh Though it is absolutely clear that we're going to have to mark off these two years as having been very particular years and very kind of strange years and so on, the the temptation, particularly on people, uh, sections of the right, to moan about this constantly and so on, to make this a kind of big moan. Everybody's going to get prizes. means all these kind of people are going to be do things they're not kind of qualified for it and so on. Um, uh, that's going to drive us mess. I'm not going to listen to any of those. I'm just going to kind of shut those down. Anybody starts tweeting that at me, you know, it's a kind of mute for the week. Um, and that's it. And the point that you make is also quite important. And it's not just a kind of pious point. Um, if you've worked for your examinations um, uh, uh, in uh, at A-level and GCSE, that work will stand you in good stead in some way because you've kind of exercised a degree of discipline. And you're also right, it's pretty unlikely that when you get to, let's say, 35, anybody, and you apply for your next job, since people tend to move on from jobs now, it's very unlikely that anybody's going to be looking at what it is that you did at GCSE or, or A-level. They'll be looking at other things about you, at least we hope that, that, that they will. So it's also right that you shouldn't kind of despair. It's something, but it's not everything. And in the meantime, as Danny says, stop bloody moaning about it. <laughs> Fine. Well, let's talk. Let's uh, move on and talk about something much more serious to the entire nation to uh, discuss. Uh, let's talk about the alpaca. Uh, Geronimo the alpaca, animal rights protesters yesterday marching on Downing Street in a bid to save Geronimo. Uh, twice tested positive for bovine TB. Department of F uh, Food, Environment and Rural Affairs has ordered it to be euthanized. We all know what that means. Uh, there's lots of protests about it. Uh, Danny, here's a question I never thought I'd ask. Where do you stand on the alpaca? Well, look, the first thing is, obviously, if you were trying to work out the most effective way of testing an alpaca for bovine tuberculosis, you wouldn't think, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask Danny Finkelstein what he thinks. <laughs> um, so I, the first point is on the technicality. I don't 
I simply don't know. So they're having these discussions. Um, I must say, when I read what George Eustace had to say, what when I read what Defra had to say about uh, testing, it seemed fairly uh, convincing to me. Uh, but I am not an expert, and so I don't know. Um, but what I do know is you cannot possibly start making decisions about um, disease control in animals uh, by picking an individual animal, putting it on the front page and giving it a name and start to say that one animal you shouldn't dispense with. You have to have a general rule. Obviously, you have to exercise that rule with some sensitivity. And this actually is a broader importance than uh, simply the, the you know this particular alpaca or even actually the, the important issue of animal uh, disease control it's more broadly the case with disease control in general or even with something like public spending you can't make a decision more broadly by picking on one individual item uh, pointing out how bad that particular individual item is for one individual concerned and trying to build a general rule as a result of that you have to have some more general principle uh, the other thing really so should... I, i'm afraid that what that means it, just to be to so I'm not being weak about this. What that means is that, um, you know, if DEFRA under its rules decides that it needs to uh, needs to euthanize uh, the alpaca, then I am in favor of doing that. I can't believe we're talking about this. I mean, I absolutely literally can't believe we're talking. We have just had a very, very uh, intelligent uh, journalist, a member of the House of Lords, give his earnest opinion about whether or not an alpaca should be put down or how we should kind of think about it. And that's very kind of valuable. Had that alpaca wandered last Tuesday night, let's say, out of his alpaca pen in front of a bus, no one would have given a damn about it. No one would have cared. No one would have said we must change the bus route so alpacas can't come out there. No one would have mm. said we must have an ancient inquiry into how safe the pen was, etc. Nobody would have given a damn about it. And nobody should give a damn about it. It's completely trivial. It's utterly ridiculous. And if people haven't got better things to do than complain and demonstrate about alpacas, I can show them one or two other courses that they could conceivably take up. It's, you know, and the idea that government has to worry about, it's like the thick of it, isn't it? It's like an episode of the thick of it where the ministers have to worry about what's happening to the alpaca. I do not care. It also... was originally my, that was originally my view, David, but I'm not sure I think it's right. I think that um, sometimes you get these individual cases and they allow you to test whole systems or ways of thinking. So, uh, you know, it brings one uh, to, to familiarity with whole systems of disease control, uh, with government decision making about testing and uh, following that through, uh, with how appeals are considered, with people's relationship with animals. So I actually learn a lot from it. Yes, you could look at it as being trivial and an individual example, but if you didn't, I suppose, you know, what has been done is anthropomorphize um, Geronimo. You you wouldn't um, you wouldn't have the you wouldn't have a lot of the knowledge that we've gained so i don't actually quite agree although it does on the surface of it look a bit silly i don't think it is entirely risible it also um knowing uh um farmers who have been through the nightmare of uh worrying that their own their, their cattle herds have got tb and they are sort in cattle herds uh, cattle herds are slaughtered all the time as a result of testing positive tb farmers lose their entire sort of um, uh, livelihoods, the taxpayer that actually pays phenomenal amounts of compensation uh, for this. Uh, an entire system that no nobody who's uh, protesting about Geronimo seems to know or understand at all. Um, there was a fantastic thing on the, on the Times website. I saw it was an advert from KFC, and they said, "Click here for what we're doing to enhance uh, chicken uh, chicken welfare." And I thought, well. Chopping them up in pieces and dipping them in batter probably doesn't help their welfare all that much. Oh, uh, no, you know, there's no, like a, what a way uh, to go, though. What a way to... It's what they would have wanted. <laughs> no, but I, what I'm trying to say is, you know, David's got a broader point, which is obviously correct, which is it's ridiculous to pick one animal when, we, when we're so, um, uh, you know, broadly... Uh, sort of blithe about them but on the other hand if you don't do that you i suppose you never uh, completely um 
capture the, 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 the full nature I, of what we're doing. I think it's a noble effort, Danny. And I think you've got to, actually, I do think you've got a point. And I thought very seriously while you were talking about it. But unfortunately, we don't debate these things in the way you suggest. We debate it at a kind of level of infantilization, and we indulge this infantilization. I hate to sound, sound like Oliver Cromwell or, or something like that, but it's, you know, by all means, let's talk about the issue of animal welfare and let's talk about the issue of TB. And if we're about it, let's also talk about the fact that we probably have far too many cattle and actually there are all kinds of other reasons for not wanting quite so many and so on. But... But people to actually go out protesting about this, you must to cover the kind of protest. It's a little, you know... I you don't know think it's people... unconnected to, as you were saying, the big yellow thing in the sky. Come on, it's August, the sun's out, let's no, go enjoy you don't, it. Um, you don't sound like Oliver Cromwell, actually, David. You sound like Dominic Cummings, actually. Um, <laughs> what, and I, um, well, that's... I'll tell, tell you for why. The what you're saying, thing you've ever said is, <laughs> What you're saying is that Man people... Man knows how to hurt. Man no, knows how to wound. What you're saying is that people shouldn't talk about such serious topics using kind of mere... End entertainment or triviality but that is how people understand things yeah, you know and one of my one of my objections to a lot of what Dominic Cummings says is that I think that he doesn't sort of he's trying to sort of say what should people be interested in if they weren't really people people are interested <laughs> in it so, and, and 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 therefore and therefore you and therefore this does provide however on the surface trivial it is it does provide Danny, a way in for people Danny, to I'm, a person. I'm a person i'm a person too, are you and i'm not in and i'm not interested <laughs> i really am i'm not a borg i'm not interested in some idiot complaining about a bleeding now right go on then very quickly uh, so, very quickly because i want to ask you about this uh let's forget about Jodomo and concentrate on another um uh, dopey animal and uh, nobody knows what to do with it david cameron uh what should we do about david cameron was is the fact he earned was it ten million dollars seven million pounds from Greensill Capital? His his lobbying efforts uh, completely failing. He still earned ten million dollars. His spokesman says it's a private matter. Is it, Danny? I. The question is whether it should be because it clearly is, right? So the, the, what, what what David has a broader view that he doesn't think anybody's salary and all that should he thinks it should all be public, which I disagree with. But um, let, let's uh, we can go to that broader view in a second. In specifically, it is he is a private citizen and it's a private matter. Therefore, the question is whether, as a former prime minister, the what he earns and what he does should be a private matter. And I've I've made clear I think there ought to be rules uh, that cover what a former prime minister do they're different from simply former cabinet ministers and for a much longer period of time so i think that many more rules should have governed david cameron's relationship with Greensill, um which i also you know subsidiary point thought was a misjudgment um but the question of the of the ethics and whether it should be public or private you can't say retrospectively it should be something that it what that it clearly wasn't um but i think it, we have learned some lessons about what rules we think should apply because we all looked at it and thought we're not very comfortable with that uh, and yet it was completely within the rules well that suggests the rules don't cover what we are comfortable with and we ought to think about the rules again david i mean uh, I think it is a public matter, but then I do think earnings are a public matter, as Danny quite correctly says. I think we should adopt a system like they have in Sweden and Norway, whereby tax declarations are made public. It hasn't led to a fantastic amount of disorder. The biggest argument I've heard against it is that those who don't earn very much might feel stigmatised as a result of their lack of earnings being seen. But I do think there is something about David Cameron's expectation that he should earn so very much money, having been Prime Minister, for doing so very little work. By the way, it wasn't uh, that much that much work, even if the work he did was something we don't think was particularly noble, etc., earned so much money that this should be his expectation, and that his expectation should be that it's not anybody's right to know about it. Just, I think it tells you, I mean, it's, I, don't know, I know at this point, I already do sound like Oliver Cromwell, but I do <laughs> think it tells you an awful lot about Hear dread words. What's wrong with this country? <laughs> well, that was Finkovich, Danny Finkstein, and David Aronovich. Of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, is your holiday killing the countryside? First, let's speak to uh, uh, Carol Lewis, uh, Deputy Property Editor for the Times and the Sunday Times. Hi, Carol. Hi. Uh, nice to have you with us. So, uh, what is happening in terms of the second home market in the UK? And what impact has the pandemic had? I mean, there's always been tensions between local residents and second homeowners, but this summer it seems to reach breaking point. That's because several things have come together. As we spoke about before on this programme, there's been a property boom fueled by the pandemic-induced lifestyle uh, changes. We've seen people move from cities to the country and coastal spots. 
We've had a stamp duty holiday, which second homeowners have been able to take advantage of in England, but not in Wales. And we've had low interest rates. So we've seen a lot more second home buyers and a lot more people relocating. Um, Hampton say about 15,000 people bought a second home in the first half of this year. And as you said, in some areas now, we've got 80% um, second homeowners and in those hotspots in Devon and Cornwall, North Norfolk and, and the Lake District. Uh, and the property market boom has pushed up prices by more than 10% in some of these areas. We've pushed in the pushing and pricing out houses for local people. And then at the same time, we've got the staycation boom and We've got fewer rental properties because the higher prices have enticed some landlords to sell up. Uh, so they've seen they can make some money by selling up. Uh, we've got 50,000 fewer rental properties available this year than last in the country. And we've got the staycation boom. So some landlords are saying, well, you know, hang on a minute, I can make a bit more money. I've had a local family here paying £700 a month, but I can make £1,700 a week on Airbnb. So we've got stories of local families being kicked out of rental properties so that holidaymakers can come in. Uh, you know, in Solcombe, for instance, in Devon, uh, last week there were no long-term rentals available, but there was something like 300 Airbnbs available. Obviously, they're very expensive. Um, we're hearing stories of local families, hospital staff, RNLI crew, hospitality workers who are, who are vital in these areas for the tourism industry, having nowhere to stay. So you've got that going on, but you've also got to balance the fact that a lot of these areas benefit from tourism and, and need some holiday lets, need some people coming and spending money in the area. So it, it's how do we balance these different needs? And uh, I suppose the problem is that, that you, you might reach a tipping point where uh, an area suddenly becomes much less um, nice to go and visit as a holidaymaker if the only people there are holidaymakers, you know, and the pubs shut because there was nobody there in the winter and the shops are shut and all that sort of, you know, so, so you, you want yeah. part of the reason why these pieces, places are so popular is because they're, they feel like a thriving community. And what can be done about it? Because there'll be various ideas, and we'll speak to some um, MPs about it, but there'll be various ideas about maybe we could do some with planning in Wales. Uh, they've increased the amount that councils can charge for, for council tax. Is that right? Yes, they're trialling it in, in, in Wales. There's a consultation going on there because they have a similar problem. Um, we, we need a package of things. There's not one silver bullet. Um, we need more truly affordable homes to be primary residences for local people. I think, uh, um, and Duncan will verify this, in places like Blakeney and North Norfolk, uh, your average new build home costs about a million pounds. So, you know, a 30% discount isn't really going to cut it. But we have to make it worth the while for developers because the problem is in areas where this has been done before is these schemes push up the price of um, the existing stock of housing and also developers are less keen to build because they can't make as much money because they're selling at a lower price to a restricted audience so that has to be thought through there is the idea a few MPs are backing which is uh, a change of planning laws which could be done as an amendment to the planning bill later this autumn in which you have to register a change of use when a property goes from full-time residential to holiday let, and that would allow local councils to say, we want no more than one in three homes to be holiday lets. I mean, obviously you can't do anything retrospectively. The holiday homes you've got are the holiday homes you've got. You can't start buying them out or kicking people out. But that, So that is something else to consider. We could have more restrictions on Airbnb style rentals. I know they've done that in other places like uh, Lisbon and Barcelona. They've restricted the amount of Airbnbs in any one area. Uh, and you could, as you say, um, go for the tax that Wales are consulting on, which is increasing the council tax, maybe double or trebling it for second homeowners, ring fencing the money and using it to help subsidise local services like shops and bus services and so on. Just finally, Carol, if someone was thinking about buying a second home, where's the sort of uh, a secret spot where you could still get yourself an affordable place rather than the, one of the hot spots? <laughs> affordable is difficult. <laughs> I, think. I mean, I say affordable. If you're buying a second home, you know, you're, you're probably not on the breadline uh, already. But yeah, where, 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 no. there, where were the sort of the new, the new, the new hot spots rather than the sort of the obvious ones? I think you could look to go to some of the, the seaside towns that are struggling. Um, 
I mean, instead of coming down to Devon or Cornwall or the Lake District, you could try sort of Great Yarmouth or um, I'm trying to think Skegness, maybe those old holiday favourites that have fallen out of favour, which you know could probably do with a bit of a boost. A bit of but, a boost and people know, turning up with some money. Yeah. <laughs> Carol, lovely to speak to you as ever. Thanks so much for that. That's Carol there. Uh, Carol Lewis is the Deputy Property Editor for The Times and The Sunday Times. Uh, let us know what you think about this. Greg says, on second homes, thank God Britain still remains mainly a free country. If you want a second home, you should be certainly be free to buy one. Let us know what you think. 8722, start your message with the word Times. Right, let, now let's speak to Judy Pearce. Uh, the lead was South Hams uh, Council in Devon. Hi, Judy. Hello, good morning. And we've also got Mike Tremaine from the Kerno Matters to Us campaign group. Hi, Mike. Mike is there. We'll speak to him in just a sec. Uh, Judy, first of all, let's explain, uh, I mean, one of the most beautiful parts of the world, never mind of the country down in the South Hams. But as a result, there you've, you've trapped this, this problem of uh, second homes. Explain the situation for you in South Hams and then what you're trying to do to tackle it. Along the coast, we have got up to um, 75 to 80% second homes in some communities. Um, Sorkham is an example where it's not quite as bad, but the resident population of Sorkham is something over 2,000, and it swells to near 23,000 wow. in the summer. So that's where we are now. And, um, so there is the real problem is a lack of capacity of the local community to run itself. And a further problem is that anybody with um, a rental home um, where they make it available for rent for more than 114 nights a year is able to stop paying council tax and put themselves on business rates. And because their business rates are under £10,000 a year, they get small business rate remission, so they don't pay anything. Now, that really uh, is opting out of the community and is seen as such, and that is a loophole that needs to be closed, as well as all the ones that Carol has enumerated so well. Um, <laughs> And do you as a council feel like you have the powers that you what you need at the moment to in order to protect your local communities? No, not at all, because we cannot do anything about the business rates. We couldn't do anything about charging extra council tax if we wanted to do that. I'm not saying we do. Um, but our, our main our main problem really is community cohesion. And the people that really miss out from this business rate thing are the parish and town councils because they don't get their preset. We as a council get some remission um, on the business rate, so we do get some refund on that, but but not by not 100% by any means. Um, so we're all we're what's happening is the resident population are having to pay for all the weight of the tourism uh, that the tourism brings, and there's no other way of funding it. So, for instance, having to empty litter bins and clean the public loos more often. Um, street street scene, cleaning the streets more often, just because of the amount of litter that people leave around. So all that has to be paid for by the local population, and it really is not fair on them. Then, especially as they can't find anywhere to live at the moment, and businesses are having to close two days a week. Some of the pubs are closed two days a week because they can't find staff to run them. So we, it, the whole system is creaking at the moment. There's nowhere for people to live. They're having to pay for all the tourists that are coming. Now, we welcome them because they keep the businesses going, but there needs to be a fairer balance on how the system works. That's the picture in uh, Devon then. Yeah, Mike Tremaine from the uh, Kerno Matters to Us campaign group. What's the, what's the situation in Cornwall? Well, good morning to you, and I concur entirely with what the councillor from the South Hams has said. We have a real crisis in Cornwall now, and um, so much so that the uh, Cornwall Council, our unitary authority, is urgently building bunker bins, as they call them, to uh, home um, homeless people, made homeless by um, this... Uh, we, we make no bones about it, a scourge of second homes. Um, since this matter was aired on our many social media sites, our inboxes have been filled with appeals uh, for housing. And these appeals are coming from nurses, even from junior doctors, who can no longer afford to live in our communities. Um, it's a spiral, and it's, and it's absolutely out of control. I, I was speaking to a councillor on Sunday, um, and she's a parish councillor in a parish where 84% of the properties are second homes. Um, obviously, this is unsustainable, and we're, we're getting some really, really 
terrible stories of how people are suffering. For example, an 83-year-old man evicted from his rented flat um, by a landlord who feels he can make more out of uh, renting out either via Airbnb or more established uh, methods. Uh, That 83-year-old is now in a condemned caravan being taken care of by two carers. Um, We're getting stories of um, other staff uh, in essential public services that are, in fact, being evicted from their properties as the owners are turning them over to tourism. Um, And, you know, the problem is that, you know, the, the wealthy incomers are bringing with them an economy which is out of kilter with our own local economy. And I suppose um, that's the thing, isn't it? If you're if you're a, a nurse or a doctor, as you were saying, you know your your salaries. You can't earn more just because house prices. You know, it's not like the Cornwall Hospital can can bump up its wages to pay the nurse. And I was looking through some of the examples. You'd got two bedroom semi detached. This is a nurse. Two bedroom semi detached house in my village for three hundred and sixty thousand pounds. As a local nurse, I stand no chance whatsoever of owning my own home. Um, and I, I remember uh, being in uh, California a couple of years ago and talking to someone. They were making exactly this point, particularly around sort of Silicon Valley. Uh, nurses, teachers living in caravans on the side of the road so that they could look after and educate the children of the rich you know, Silicon Valley billionaires. Um, and it's amazing so how, right it's been, how it's now, we've, we seem to now have imported it here, Mike. Well, we do. And, um, you know, in common with a lot of people here in Cornwall, a lot of indigenous people, I have a lot of relatives and a lot of them are, in fact, in California. And we're we're now seeing what is happening there or has happened there, happening here. People living in their cars. uh, We've got 300 homeless children, children made homeless. Um, by this that are in uh, bed and breakfast accommodation. Um, you know, we, we've even got a report of a family now residing in somebody's garden shed because, uh, because of this, um, this crisis. And let's not, let's not uh, put it any differently in any different terms. It is a real crisis. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you've had a couple of speakers on this morning, and I concur entirely with them that there is now a real necessity um, to um, uh, subject second homes and holiday lets to planning permission or, or planning application. Um, we're calling to sort out uh, this loophole in the tax system where somebody can opt out of paying council tax, register their second home as a business, and quite legally use a loophole, uh, declare, a, declare a loss, and pay nothing at all into the local community. Um, Additionally, we're saying that more and more house purchases should be restricted to those resident in the area for at least a a period of time, perhaps two years, with the exception of those coming uh, to staff key, uh, key services. Mike, um, Mike, Mike, it's really good speech. Mike Tremaine there uh, from Kerno uh, Matters to us. We also heard from Judy Pierce, the leader of South Ham's uh, council. In a moment, we're going to speak to some MPs about what they think could be done about this issue, not least through the planning bill, which is currently going through Parliament. Talking second homes, uh, holiday lets, Airbnbs, and the impact that they're having on uh, local areas. Extraordinary stories about doctors, teachers, nurses who can't live in the place that they're trying to they're trying to work. Well, what can be done about it politically? There was a debate uh, last month in the House of Commons on exactly this subject. We'll speak to a couple of the MPs who spoke in the debate uh, in just a moment. But first, let's uh, take a listen to the Lib Dem MP, Tim Farron, uh, speaking in that debate. I'm speaking to you from just outside the Lake District in Westmoreland, uh, where we always have had a huge problem of excessive second home ownership and indeed the pressure that too many holy lets in many communities can put upon a local community. But over the last 12 months, that problem has become catastrophic. We have been deeply concerned that governments over the years have failed to acknowledge this problem, but now surely is unmissable. Just to give you an idea that over the last 12 months, estate agents I speak to say that anything up to 80% of all house sales have been into the second home market. There are communities in my constituency where 90% of the homes are not lived in, uh, and you do not need to think too hard to work out what the consequences of 
even 30% of a, a community not being lived in all year round will be. You lose a local school because there's nobody going to uh, to that school from the, the homes within that community. You lose the local bus services, the pub, the post office and all the other facilities as well. These beautiful places can become ghost towns, but that problem has got so much worse in this last 12 months. We've also seen the massive, massive growth in the number of holiday lets. You can imagine that here in the South Lakes, we will have one of the highest proportion of holiday lets anywhere in the country. Well, that huge number has gone up by 32% in one year. And as we mentioned by other honourable members earlier, that's come about from a different, a variety of different sources, but in particular, it'll be the Airbnb market. Anecdotally, what does this mean? Constituents of mine I've spoken to in Ambleside, in Kirby Lonsdale, in Grangeover Sands and other places besides, who had a, a rental property, maybe six or seven hundred pounds a month in their community, in the pri private rented uh, property, and they will then find that they're kicked out now that the eviction ban has been ended, and they discover that that property is on the market for a thousand pounds a week on Airbnb. So that is outrageous, and it's something that government is, has the power to do something about through planning reforms that would actually make a difference. And so what I'm asking the government to do, and, and it's this, change planning law. You change planning law so that holiday lets and second homes are separate categories of planning use. And then you give Lake District National Park, Yorkshire Dales National Park, South Lakeland District Council and all planning authorities the power and the resource in order to police that so that you prevent the leakage of these homes out of the family home market. Uh, that was the Lib Dem MP Tim Farron speaking last month in a House of Commons debate on the problem of second homes. We've had lots of messages in. Uh, Lindsay says, I have a holiday cottage in Derbyshire and I absolutely agree. Uh, RE business rates relief. I should pay something towards the local uh, community. But then Alison gets in touch, says, as usual, the discussion on second home ownership is ridiculously exaggerated. Taking North Norfolk as an example, second home ownership only affects a few villages along the coast like Blakeney and Clay. Uh, you can go half a mile inland and it's all local ownership. Well, let's speak to two MPs and get their views on that and exactly what could be done by the government in terms of legislation. Conservative MP Bob Seeley is the MP for the Isle of Wight. Hiya, Bob. Hi, Matt. Good morning, Keith. Uh, nice to speak to you. We've also got Duncan Baker, Conservative MP for North Norfolk. Hi, Duncan. Good morning, Matt. I feel like I ought to come to you first, Duncan, uh, in your response to that point by Alison, uh, who tweeted in, uh, that this only affects a few villages and it's all been exaggerated. Yeah, I wouldn't quite agree with Alison. I think it's actually what we've seen is over the years... Um, Burnham Market used to be called Chelsea on Sea, and we've seen just the coastal communities now as we spread around to the east, uh, many of them start to see the same issues. So Blakeney, Clyde, Wiveton, slightly more inland, Langham, even the bigger towns, Wells, Sheringham, Cromer, all beginning to experience this problem. Yes, I would say it's not quite in the same category as the southwest. But certainly we are now seeing this beautiful, idyllic, picturesque area suffering from many of the same problems that we've heard about this morning. Uh, Bob Seeley, what could be done by, as you've been mentioned, this planning bill is going through the uh, Parliament as we speak. Uh, lots of MPs uh, affected by this problem seem to be looking to it as a possible avenue. What would you like to see uh, done? I think just on this, I think there are lots of things to talk in general about the planning laws. But specifically, when it comes to the issue yeah. that we're dealing with now, is probably to take forward the ideas put forward by Judy um, and other people who are, okay, firstly, we've got to stop this opt out because it's killing local communities and it's putting so much pressure on the people who live in them full time. So you take on the Isle of Wight, and I don't know whether to be happy or sad that Carol completely ignored the island, clearly doesn't exist, sadly, for her. I, it should do, because it's a fabulous little place. She's very welcome to come and visit. And <laughs> see, it's 82% it's second home ownership. In Bembridge, it's about 60, 50 to 60, and in Yarmouth, it's 40%. Yes, you go inland, uh, and there are, uh, there, uh, and it's less of a problem, but in, in a growing number of communities, we have real pressure, and this combines with other pressures, like the fact that we're trying to protect our landscape for our tourism, our visitor economy, our quality of life, and because of its historic and beautiful nature, and we're just, we're confronted by pressures all around, of which second home owners are one. So there's, there's the immediate thing, which is to stop the opt-out, but there's also then the ability to give councils more power. What I would like to see is the Isle of Wight as a local planning authority, the Isle of Wight Council, being given the power to do useful things in this sphere, like having planning permission. So if you buy a house that's a primary residence, you want to turn it into a second home or an Airbnb, you have to get planning permission for change of use. And then clearly the council can put stipulations that it can just ban 
an increase in second homes or Airbnbs in Seaview, in Bembridge, in Yarmouth, potentially in Cowes as well, which is the sort of world home of sailing. So there's things that we could, it's about giving more power to give local councils the choice. You're not forcing them to do something, but you're saying if you want to limit second homeowners, if you want to apply for change of permission, you can do so. And Duncan, it is just extraordinary, this situation that we were talking about with Mike before, where um, the argument seems to be it's fine because it's all all right inland. So uh, teachers, doctors, nurses, uh, uh, people who collect the bins, they don't need to live in nice places by the sea. They can all go and live inland, seems to be the implication. It's extraordinary that people on on decent, particularly public sector wages, can't live in the places where where they're working. Yeah, I mean, what Bob just uh, said was extremely important. It is about giving a lever to those local authorities. So, yes, if you take North Norfolk and many uh, of the inland areas, uh, perhaps are slightly uh, less expensive. They're still expensive, um, given the disparity between wages and house price inflation. But what the idea that Bob was so eloquently putting forward is you actually then give a bit of control to local authority so they can actually sort of pepper pot those regions that are particularly suffering uh, from this problem. And then I would go a little step um, further, Matt, and I would actually then start to say, once you've done that, you can create this additional council tax levy. Because when you've got that and you can charge perhaps two or three hundred percent of the council tax levy on top of those second homes, which then is a a perfectly acceptable thing to do, you can start to either build more affordable homes for people to then be able to live in, but you can subsidise the local community shop, the bus routes, so that during the winter months, when often many of our villages are left as dormitories, there are more sustainable ways of being able to live in those villages. And I think until we do that, we're going to continue to see these problems reoccurring. Can I just add something? Yeah, of course, go on, just just to uh, follow up on what um, Duncan's very sensible points, there is to the and to the lady who says it's fine inland. There is a question about responsibility. Do councils really want to be encouraging some of their communities effectively to be deserted ghost towns for seven, eight, nine months of the year? There is a, an issue here of social responsibility. Do we really want Seaview to hit ninety percent second homes and be effectively deserted from November through to March? You know, uh, it, it's what you do, and that is a very, very poor use of housing. And actually, it kills communities because then those communities suffer because you have lower council tax income and you simply have a, the school will shut. And then I will get a post bag. Duncan will get a post bag of complaints. Our school shut. And we have to come back and say, well, the school shut because there's no kids and there's no kids because it's all second home. And all the kids are actually at school in West London. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.